Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of... Beneath the Screen of the Ultra Critics! <laughs> and today we have a special episode uh, with two guests, not more than one, two. We have with us... I mean, two is more than one. Shut I mean, up. That's... <laughs> we have with us uh, Taylor. Hi Taylor, there. Taylor. Hi. And we also have Michael. Say hello, Michael. Hello, Michael. <laughs> oh, I see how this is going to be. <laughs> and um, we have these two on because a while ago we had a nuts and bolts episode where we talked about filmmaking and like things people don't normally talk about. And Thad asked a question, to, and I didn't really have an answer to, and that was, what does a producer do? <laughs> oh, so, I, so I figured, what better way than to get two producers on? Yeah, to double talk up about the, uh, the nebulous notion of what a producer does. Because I've had multiple people ask me, because apparently I'm the only person they know, <laughs> what a yes, producer but, does. And this way, we can have hopefully two completely contradictory definitions, and they can just <laughs> argue with each other about what a producer's job actually is, and no ground will be made. It'll be excellent. It'll be a Sounds about episode. right. <laughs> So, this is an excellent episode if you want to be a producer. No? No? No one? I I know the song, I don't know the lyrics. (laughs) I I only sing in the shower. You don't do all of your pod... You don't do all of your podcasting from the shower? I mean, there is a reason my camera's not on. (laughs) Nice. So, uh, Thad, you want to start off the first question, or do you have a question you want to ask him? Since you're the one who well, a- answered, asked the uh, inaugural question. <laughs> okay, um, I don't know. I, I came up with a few questions, all of which I think Actually, are Actually, hold on. We're, we're, we're really awful at this. Yeah. Taylor? Yeah. Taylor, tell us, <laughs> right. like, what Who are you, and what are you doing here? <laughs> who am I, and what am I doing here? I'm not sure, um, to be honest. About no, which I, I, <laughs> Michael recommended I you because you have a degree. Well, that's overrated. But yeah, I do have a degree. I graduated uh, two years ago from LMU uh, and started producing like smaller gigs for uh, like commercial stuff and uh, shorter Mm -hmm. films from people I knew from LMU and kind of got into that way. I know a lot of people don't like producing or don't have the affinity I do for it, uh, which makes it easy kind of to find things uh, when people don't want to do that job. (laughs) All right. Michael, what about you? I feel like you also live in a part of the country where people are capable of having opinions about producing, whereas, like, I'm in the Midwest, where if you say producer, people will just stare at you blankly. <laughs> yeah, well, people might have too many opinions out here on what a producer does. <laughs> Fair. Uh, Michael, what about you? Uh, very similar. I um, <clears throat> I also graduated uh, two years ago, and uh, obviously, you know, you work on the student films and, uh, you know, various... Uh, very wearing various hats. I produced, I think, six, and had a part of producing more like ten. And then uh, after graduation, I produced six micro uh, micro films for the Chapman acting department. Okay. Well, micro so film that's... would be like a short film, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was just uh, very short scenes that were then used to promote the. Um, Every year, well, most schools at the end of the year they have their showcase. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So it was for that. So I did probably twelve. Okay. Oh wow, nice. Mm. All right. Um, there's those are the credentials. Two people who've actually done producing. <laughs> Pretty impressive. Thad, <laughs> uh, yeah. what was your question? Now that we can ask uh, on. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's funny because I look at the questions that both of us came up with, and I look at mine, and I'm like, these are very teachery questions. I feel, but screw well, that's it. fine I'm, I'm because most people that. literally have no idea what a producer does. Um, so so I'm gonna go with um, so for each of you, I, I don't I, I don't know what order you want to answer, and you can fight each other, I guess. But my my first question is what what was your idea of what a producer was before you became one? And what do you feel you were right about? And what do you feel you were so, so wrong about? Hmm. That's a good question. Try to think back uh, before I knew that. Mike, do you have anything initially on that? Uh, I mean, to be honest, the, the reason why I got my degree in it because I had no idea what it was. and <laughs> That is a great I, – I actually think that's a great reason to get a degree in something. And, and I figured, uh, you know, I knew it was an important job. That's all I knew. 
Because you see the credits like right there at the beginning. Yeah, right. so my thought process was, well, I should probably learn what that person does, either to A, do it, or know when someone sucks at it. Mm. Yeah, so, I didn't so you're it. so okay. So so just to be, I always have to do follow up stuff. I don't know why it's a habit. So <laughs> yours is basically that you you only had the concept that it was important, even if you didn't know why. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, sorry, uh, Taylor. No, no worries. Uh, I was just trying to think back to when I, I didn't really know what producing was. I'm not even sure if I know what producing is now. I mean, it, <laughs> honestly, it changes uh, every job that you have and everything that you do. But I think initially. Uh, like many other of my peers, uh, came in wanting to be a director because, you know, that is the name that you see. Mm. Uh, come to find that many of the things I thought were the director's responsibilities ended up being the producer's uh, responsibilities. And that can cross over and shift depending on the project. But I guess my perception before was, I mean, it's very similar to Mike's. Like, it was an important job. They got stuff done. They helped the production run. And I would say that's still pretty much true after the fact, although definitely expanded as I learned more and more. Well... Because, okay, here's the thing. My stepdad called me once because he saw a movie, which is rare for him. <laughs> and he goes, Jeremiah, I have a question. And it was a bunch of production companies and a bunch of studios listed and a bunch of producers' names listed. Was this All one of those, those movies where the first, like... making the movie. And I'm like, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> is this is this one of those movies where like the first ten minutes are just like studio logos and production company like names? Well, that's correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but that's normally that's because that's like how many people had to get involved in order to get the movie distributed, correct? Yeah, distributed or made. Okay. Somewhere. Yeah. Um. I mean, even this sounds crazy, but like these days in the age of you know the six logos before the film. <laughs> one of those logos could have been now these days because they needed to get the actor from China and this is the production company that said actors associated with. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So there's there's those sorts of things now to yeah. take into consideration. Like and what, what sort of the studio may not even exist anymore. Oh yeah, I mean well I mean uh, the one I can think of that is now back that was defunct forever was Orion. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Mm. God, I, I th- I'm sorry. I think of Orion, and I just see the most '80s intro logo possible. Yeah. In my oh head. yeah, definitely. <laughs> and, I mean, it was it was gone, and now it's. I see it again. It's popping up on stuff. The other one, MGM, was gone for a while, and with Bond, it's back. Hmm. Isn't? I mean, MGM's whole thing is crashing and burning, isn't it? <laughs> well, okay. So here's my question: Where do you guys like come in in the process of a film being made? Well, I mean, I'll take the lead if that's all right with you, Mike. Yeah, go ahead, brother. I was just going to say there's a distinction between a a lot of different types of producers. Producer Mm -hmm. is a very broad term um, to be given really at the discretion of whoever is running the show, which, you know, at times can also be a producer. Um, So usually you'll see, like when you're watching credits, executive producers. Obviously those are executives in like a production company or at a studio, and usually they'll have not too much hands-on during the project, but they'll make broad decisions or, you know, be consulted at the end when things are over. And, and I assume they wear very nice suits. I, I would assume so. I've never <laughs> been a good enough producer to go see those producers. Okay, since you've never seen them, almost certainly they wear very nice suits. <laughs> For all they know, they could be running around naked in the bathtub. I have no idea. Um, but they do make very high-level decisions. Uh, generally. And so there's the executive producers. And then when they open it up to the other producing, it could be anything. I mean, this could be people who just gave $50,000 to the production and never saw anyone again. Um, mm-hmm. They'll hand those out occasionally. Uh, and then there's line producers, uh, which you might also see in the credits. Line producers have more of the day-to-day operations. They're like the day managers or the COOs of the production. Um, so they run a lot of like the, how do we get everybody from point A to point B? Where do we put everybody up in lodging? Um, basically all the gritty details or business stuff that you wouldn't mm. want to put on the director. And I totally forgot what the context of this question was now that I've talked for so long. Well, no, no, the, the context was like, for, because a lot of people, like, you have a, a sort of, there's a timeline oh, where, do where we come movie in? starts to be point. made, and like, yes. at what point do you, can you, are you, guy, are you the guy who comes in at the beginning, or towards the end, or the middle? Uh, and, I, and so that, I guess that was my point I was going to make is that depending on what kind of producer you are, you'll come in at a different point. But right. generally, the producer will actually come in before the director will even come in. Yeah, that's mm. not, like a lot of times you hear like behind the scenes stuff like I was looking for a director and I chose this guy. Right. The producer is typically a guy who finds the story, which is part of the job I really like. You find the story and you're like, I want to make this new movie, whether it's in a book or an article or an original idea. 
And then you find a writer and a director. Those are the first two guys you kind of go to, and you build mm-hmm. a team from there. Yeah, a producer of some sort is going to be uh, Patient Zero. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, like, like Miss Taylor said, uh, someone in those in one of those hats, it's going to be a producer who gets the ball actually rolling. Um, now, I mean, in this particular case, unless the the script is spec, even before the writer gets involved, the producer is somewhat involved, mm-hmm. usually. Okay, could you do me a favor and define spec for audience? Sure. Uh, spec script is something that is written without a contract. Yeah, he's no, writing the right. Yeah. So, like, uh, as I understand it, a, a lot of people will, like, part of their trying to get their foot in the door in the industry will be putting out spec scripts or, or and a lot of spec scripts don't necessarily even get made, but they're a way to get your, to get people sort of aware of you in yeah. the, the film industry. Okay, 99.9% of spec scripts never get made. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, is a spec script like an actual completed script or is just like a fragment of a script? Usually it's a full thing. Um, hmm. It can be. It it can be a section, but usually if someone's asking for a section, then they're asking for a writing sample. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I know a few people who've entered like different like spec script competitions and various other things, but uh, it is fascinating to me how it's a it's a genre of writing that almost never goes anywhere. Its only use is to prove that you have the ability to write a script, like night like you said, ninety nine percent of the time. Yeah, it's just fascinating because there's a lot of work that goes into writing a script. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's very true. And you can tell, though, when you read it. And that's why, you know, you put that much effort into a spec script, because if you put that much effort into that script, then they are pretty comfortable that if they bring you an idea, you put the same care into it. Right. Yeah. And, and if you if you dig around online, you can find all sorts of like spec scripts from writers you might be familiar with. And it, it's it's super interesting to see these sorts of things out in the wild. Well, yeah, um, but to go to L.A. and just really go to any smoothie stand. <laughs> right, but it's yeah. a longer walk for me to go to that. Smoothie. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna butt in again. So, um, sort sort of what uh, going back to to the sort of nuts and bolts questions. What would you say the core skills, as far as your own experiences of being a producer, are built around? Is it about like communication and organization? Is it about like having particular technical skills, like what day to day, what do you feel yourself leaning on the most as far as like the things you need to be able to do to do this? That's a great question. Um, I would say from, I mean, I think it depends on the person. I think for sure you have to have good instincts. Hmm. Um, and this goes down to this. You need good instincts for the story. You need to have good. Inst- you have to have an amazing bullshit detector. <laughs> like an amazing one just because the amount of times you're going to say I have because basically when you're the producer and you're putting together a budget and you go to, to vendors or whatever you are guaranteeing them a payday right? Mm-hmm. people will lie through their teeth because it's not often that they are guaranteed money mm. of usually a pretty solid amount and there are times when people just don't come through so I, I would say bullshit detector is paramount um, instincts as far as crewing, like I said, it's just kind of think you just got to have a really good gut. Yeah. So, so in a lot of ways, it sounds like the, it's it's very core on on sort of social skills, reading people, knowing who you can rely on, that kind of thing. The thing I always say is when you're a baby producer, at least that's what they call this at school. <laughs> when you're a baby producer, you do a little bit of everything. Hmm. Over time, you don't do anything because you don't have to. <laughs> Because you've learned and you've found your group of people, You're right. probably three or four sets of people that you can hire and you can check in with them once a day and you know everything's being taken care you, of. You have become a powerful wizard and can summon your minions to do what needs to be done. <laughs> or you have a budget enough to pay good people to do that. <laughs> <laughs> So a lot of it, like, is is building that sort of stable of relationships and, and knowing people well enough to be like, oh, okay, I know who can do this. And getting in touch with that person, and then just and letting them do their thing. Yeah, yeah, I agree with. And that. like I said, you check in once a day, or twice, you know, just to make sure they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with Mike. I think instincts is a huge part of it. I also think sticking to those instincts because there's a lot of different people with a lot of different opinions, and a lot of them mm. are going to seem powerful. 
Uh, and you have to be able to know that what you're doing, or at least believe that what you're doing is the right course. Uh, and at the same time, be open to changing your ways. Because a lot, I know a lot of good producers who are very set in their ways because they've worked a lot of times. But the fact is that the situation is always so fluidic and changing on a set. Uh, you have to be ready to just jump onto somebody else's boat and push it. Um, mm. I guess it's a horrible analogy because you wouldn't push a boat. But uh, <laughs> in that, is somebody somebody will have a better idea. And that's kind of what you have to actually get used to because mm. in my younger years, you know, middle school, high school, you do a group project. You can't rely on anybody. Uh, <laughs> oh, turns yeah. out that when, when you're working for money and people are really invested, they actually have good ideas and can benefit you. You have to learn to, to trust people, hmm. um, but just enough to where it doesn't bite you. So it's, so it's sort of a mixture of, of having that confidence, but, but not becoming rigid, like still being able to be flexible and, and deal with people or things as they change. Absolutely, yeah. Flexibility yeah. is paramount in producing and really a lot of aspects. I remember reading an interview with Jerry Bruckheimer, and he was talking about how with uh, Gore Verbinski, the guy that's the Pirates of the Caribbean movie, he loves oh, working yeah. with him because he doesn't have to worry about anything. He can just sit back, take pictures, he doesn't have to meddle. With other directors, he feels like he has to sort of hover over. that. Like, So I'm guessing from that mm. statement, and part of the job as a producer is just making sure the director is doing the job of maintaining a safe, or at the very least, functioning set. Mm. Well, as far as safe set, that usually falls on the AD, the first AD. Mm. And once again, this goes down to if you get on enough sets, you know who the good first ADs are. And mm. you can... So that's safety. Honestly, if you're concerned about safety as a producer, you hired the wrong people. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> <laughs> that should be the first... The, I mean, one of the first people you're going to hire is going to be that AD and the reputation that comes with them. Hmm. Um, I don't know, Taylor, do you agree or disagree with that? No, I, I mean, I definitely agree. Kind of just still jumping back to the whole, you know, you got to trust the people you hire. And, you know, the biggest thing you can do as a producer is evaluate people. I uh, might call it the bullshit detector. I mean, I agree. Hmm. It's like you got to know if a person's telling you they can do the job. Are they saying that or can they actually do that? And you don't always know. I mean, there's no 100 percent. And so a lot of it's failing and finding out that that person sucks. and You're never going to hire them again, but you whittle <laughs> it down and. At some mm. point, you become comfortable, and it's the best feeling in the world, like you were talking about Bruckheimer, when you can just hand something to someone and know that you don't have to say a thing for it to be your vision. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> well, so it's, okay. it's not necessarily it's, – so it's, fine. it's figuring out who you can rely on to be reliable. Yeah, yes, of course. Absolutely. Well, you said something, Taylor, and I, I want to sort of circle back to it. Like sure. you said your vision. So like as a producer, when you do a movie, are you working on your vision or are you letting the director do their vision or is it like a compromise? <laughs> Well, that, that depends because it depends on your director. I mean, a lot of producers will have a go-to director that they'll try to use for most of their stuff. Right. And usually they have an understanding. That's what guy he always uses. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, I mean, usually you have an understanding of where the boundaries lay. Of course, the first time you work with that person or a new director, you're going to have to figure that out uncomfortably. Uh, right. But that's, you know, but that's part of the job. As a producer myself, personally, I mean, I have a vision for something. If I bring a story mm. to somebody, I'm going to have a way I think it should look. But I also understand that their specialty is to take this and make it the best possible version of that vision. So, and, you know, it, there's that phrasing in, in film and in other things that you got to let your babies die, you kill your babies. Uh, you got to like, <laughs> let everything go and be willing to change completely on a dime. I've been on plenty of scripts that have changed, you know, a week out from production where we're flipping things around. You just have to kind of be okay with it uh, because that's the nature of the industry, really. <laughs> hmm. I, I think it's really interesting, like talking about the producer being maybe the earliest person involved, because it's like if the, that would sort of make it to where you're the only person or at least the if whoever the starting producer is would be the only person who remembered what this project was like when it was just one person, because from there, the umbrella just is going to get bigger and bigger. Yeah, very and true. That's, that's oh, kind yeah, of I mean, an interesting perspective. Yeah, the, the producer is the town drunk. He's there when the bar opens, and he's the place, the one closing <laughs> it down. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, he showed up when everyone was bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and he left when everyone wanted to kill them. I'm going to set the tone of this drunken insanity. I mean, no, it's, it's, it's crazy, but yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, typically, obviously everyone has, like, their team, but there is maybe, maybe three as small as one to five people that were there every step of the way. Yeah. And it's usually a producer and their assistant or assistants, depending on the situation. Yeah. And that bounces back to like the skills that you need as a producer. 
you need to be able to run marathons. Uh, when you're working on set, you know, set can typically last maybe like a month and a half if you're on a decent feature, maybe two months. As a producer, you're balancing six to eight projects every day, you know, 24-7 all year. You don't really get to take a day off if, you, if you're, mm. you know, busy enough. Um, and so it definitely wears on you. You have to be able to balance things and emotionally, too, you know, at a human level. Well, yeah, because yeah, stories take a lot out of you. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, and the thing is, I mean, if you, depending on how involved you are as a producer, um, you're working both your creative side of your brain as in to solve these everyday problems in as efficient and quickly a manner possible as to not disrupt the shooting day. Because, I mean, yeah, the shooting day is supposed to be 12 hours. Mm. But once you take in setups and lunch and those things, I mean, you have now you're down to 10 if you're lucky. Mm. And, um, if, if everything goes perfectly, which I'm sure always happens. That's if everyone has tied their shoes, everyone is rested, like, like all all those things take place. You're fortunate mm. if you get 10 actual hours. Right. And a, a good on-set producer, at least like we were taught this in class, has learned to ask this question, do you want to get the shot or make the day? Mm. <laughs> That's interesting. I'm taking that and stealing that. Because <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I know at least in, in, on a few student sets. I'm obviously I'm not going to call anyone out, but there have been a couple DPs that were, you know, like an hour, hour and a half hmm. on a day, you know. And I'm just sitting because I'm pretty hands off. I'm like, okay, well, I'm gonna. I know for myself, if I was in their shoes, I wouldn't want some, you know, somebody like lurking about. Right. So I'm sitting there watching USC play. And the first quarter ends, and I haven't seen the actors leave. <laughs> so I got involved. You know, I mean, it's just kind of like that's sort of how I am. You know, okay, yeah. cool. I'll let, you know, I'm the parent. I'm going to go let the kids play. But if someone comes back with blood, I'm going to have to get involved. Oh, man. <laughs> or if you don't hear from anyone for a suspiciously long time. <laughs> yeah, so I just sort of went in, and, you know, it's too quiet. Like, it was that thing. <laughs> and, um, you know, just kind of poked my head in, and. Just, you know, pulled the director out and just kind of said, hey, man, what you doing? <laughs> yeah. Man, oh, we're yeah. setting up for this. Uh, you know, like, whatever excuse I was given. Mm. So that was when I got to ask that question. Part of me was like, yay. The other part of me was like, shit. <laughs> because, you know, like, you know. You don't like, want to be that guy. Burning. Yeah, but no, but it's yeah, literally. Yeah, there's some, we're like, uh, weird phenomenon on set where, like, the director will refuse to believe it's the time that it actually is. The director and, you know, the <laughs> They'll be like, we got 10 minutes left on this. They'll be like, all right, you got 10 minutes later. Like, ready for the shot? They're like, no, we need another 20 minutes. The, the director has come unstuck in time. <laughs> yeah, they just like don't look oh, yeah. outside. They, they don't, they're not aware. It's like a casino. They've lost track. <laughs> oh, like, no, it can't be that late. They're like, it is. It's that late. I got better lies to tell you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you are the you become the snooze button that they keep wanting to smack out of uh Reflex. Well, well that's, typically oh, that's fine. Like, Ten more typically minutes. Typically, that's that's the first AD's job, and a good first AD <laughs> will keep that train rolling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on student sets, like it's a weird thing. On at least on a student set, and sometimes really early indie stuff, the way it's supposed to work is the producer finds the AD that works for him mm. to keep the director on track. Mm-hmm. On a lot of student sets, the director finds. First AD, who is usually a friend, yeah, <laughs> that's where things start breaking down because I, uh, now yeah. it's the the friend is now looking out for his friend instead of looking out for the day. Mm. At least yeah. in my experience, I'm no, right. you're right. The first set I ever worked on, the director was so student film director uh, was dating the assistant first AD. Oh, ah, huh. oh, good, good. That was a nightmare when they would fight because they do occasionally fight AD <laughs> and your director. When they would fight, it's like when you would go over to your friend's house and their parents would fight, and you'd have to <laughs> sit there awkwardly, like counting the ticks on the wall, and just wait for them to be done. It was really bad. I think it's really personal, as opposed to just having like yeah, a normal human of course. Life. You know, it goes from we got ten minutes left to you didn't have ten minutes last night. <laughs> what are you gonna do at that point? You're like, oh jeez, I'm just trying to shoot a film. And all you're losing is time. Yeah, because, you know, it's yeah, just sort exactly. of. It's fine. That's something we can get back. And yeah, like there's been, I mean, there's been moments when like I, I've said that, you know, I've just kind of like walked up and I say, look, I understand that you walked in here with a particular ego on you, but all you're doing is costing everyone time. 
you have a way to give that back, then keep it up. But if not, I can honestly find six other people on this set that can probably do your job. Because it's well, no, film like school. Every... Every... You know no, what I mean? No, like the, everyone... the thing that needs to be done. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I mean, I, w- I don't want to say I was disliked, but I definitely wasn't well liked on set. At the bar, everyone loved me. Mm. But. <laughs> You know, like on the set, because I, I don't know, man. Like I said, to me, I, I don't really have well, it's, much of a I, threshold for other people's bullshit if they're disrupting the lives of double-digit people. Yeah, I mean that that it, it, I, I imagine it becomes one of those things where the that idea of you know I'm not here to be liked is usually invoked in sort of a, a jokey reality show meme sense. But yeah, like like you're saying, I, I, I suppose it, it does boil down to like if your job is to make sure that this collaborative effort goes through well and doesn't waste everyone's time and is a success, then at the end of the day, worrying about how much people like you is going to stop you from doing the best version of that job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's one of the things where like, it it gets thrown around a lot, but the word, the phrase time is money means something when you're making a movie. Mm. Oh yeah. Oh, Absolutely. Greta Gerwig's talk about, like, she went from loving movies to actually understanding how they were made when she was directing Lady Bird. She was like, I understood how valuable time was, and that's when planning really starts to help. And the notion mm. of, I'm sitting here waiting on something, I could easily be working on something else while something else is being set up. By mm. utilizing oh, yeah. everything you have, because if you get set back, like Michael said, you have to make that up somewhere. Mm-hmm. And if you go over budget, then the studio steps in, and that becomes a domino effect. Mm. I mean, it's a studio if you're lucky, if you have a net. But the amount of projects that never finish because of one day is probably immense. Wow. Like how much, how many, yeah, I, I, I imagine the sort of threshold for how much a project can absorb either failure or just slow down gets a lot thinner when you're not working at like large budget level. I mean, if, I mean, obviously dependent on, you know, if you have a good UPM who is massaging the budget and gives you, you know, a windfall of 15%, then I'm sorry. Uh, uh, I have to interrupt because UPM. Yeah. So I was like, someone has to, I'm getting ready to say something, but I'm like, uh, United Prime manager. Minister, that can't be a thing. Okay. Okay. Unit, unit production manager. Unit production okay. Man. Um, if the unit, if the unit production manager, you know, it has given you a fifteen percent windfall in in your budget, then you're fortunate, and you want to hold on to that with everything you got because mm. that'll be the first thing that you burn through, and then you got nothing. And where it always suffers is editing, mm. post. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, that's something a lot of people forget or don't realize is post. Like a movie is more than just pre and actual post production is a thing that can drag on for a year or so. So long. And yes, it's like because thirty percent of your budget. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. I was gonna say that that uh, post is particularly hard because at that point you have all the footage and then it's just everybody arguing about their vision. Like I said, <laughs> when you get when you've got fifty people with their own ideas and then you realize in the editing room that everybody's got different ideas. Mm. You know, you're shooting the same thing, you're looking at it the same, but you're all interpreting the story differently. And and it's funny. Well, not. Not ha-ha funny, more like, oh, crap funny, but you get in the thing, and, and everybody, including the editor who wasn't even on set's got an opinion, and you're like, how does anything get done? And Mike's right. A lot of it dies in post because no one can agree, and there's all this money on the line, and it's it's honestly sad how much ego plays into it sometimes. Well, it's one of the things where I clap at the end of every movie that I watch simply because, like you guys said, the fact that it got done at all <laughs> is a miracle. <laughs> that is funny. And I've always said that you can't celebrate your movie being made until somebody is clapping as the credits roll. Well, there you go. Yeah. It's, it's you Jeremiah. Know. Jeremiah is that person. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad somebody is. We found I always him. clap because I'm always like, even if the movie sucks, I'm like, you got it through the finish line. That's I like, mean, you always clap now, <laughs> but I know you, sir. I'm the one who got you to clap. I, look, I'm just saying. We saw we we saw X Men Origins Wolverine in theater together. Yeah, that's the one and... time I didn't clap. But that was. <laughs> I, I just want to. I just want to say for the record, I love that it's 2018, and a man can tell another man how happy he was to get him to clap. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Uh... Welcome to progress, everybody. Yep. Woo. Um. All right, but it sounds like from. What you guys are saying, because Sad and I talked about this a little when I write a review, 
I put a lot of the responsibility on the director because part of the director's job is to be the figurehead, the public figurehead for what goes right and what goes wrong. Mm. But from the sounds of it, like behind the scenes, what the town considers figurehead is to be the producer. Yeah, it's it is it is what Michel Foucault would refer to as the author function. Woo, English degrees. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like it, the like the the director in a lot of ways for for us as viewers is not even the figure of the director as they were during the production, but they're they're what we use to be able to talk about the movie at all in some ways. Um, I would say that the director tends to be the figurehead of the visual. Hmm. Um, now, what you see, I would say, is probably in collaboration between the director and the cinematographer. Mm-hmm. How you see it is probably the director and the editor. And the fact that it's being seen is the producer. Mm. Okay. So it's it's a series of interconnected relationships that yeah. we all just pretend is the director. As we've discussed, it'd be impossible to figure out who's responsible for what. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, like like any success or any failure, there was a lot involved in how this thing ended up good or bad. And mm. it just if just one of those things fails, uh, the whole thing could fall apart. I mean, one of my favorite stories was uh, somebody very involved in the making of Rocky talked about watching Rocky without the music. Oh, wow. And, and they said it was just this long, boring story about some guy complaining <laughs> and this girl did you know he was like he Man. was in tears and then two weeks later bill conti does the score lays a score out they watch it again and they said holy shit we might have a best picture here <laughs> oh, wow so, you know i mean so it's just it's there's so many moving parts that... That, that's that's just an interesting thought in itself is is thinking about like the people whose job it is to look ahead and put together something that, like, you know, the rough cuts before there's score, before there's a certain length, like, effects, if you're doing a lot of that shit. Like, and, and being able to see ahead enough to not, like, lose heart in that moment where you see it without the music and it just feels flat. Mm. That's that's super interesting. Well, and also it goes, goes to show the importance of a good score. Mm. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's you know, it's it's all of it. It's you know, you yeah, have the most the, beautiful the, music in the world, but if someone just puts a camera in place and you watch two people talk, you know, it's doesn't matter how swelling the score is. Right. Like, yeah, you know, well, you've, all, you've all seen <laughs> that movie some... where the music swell and you're like, I don't give a shit. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, of course. Really boring conversations to an amazing jukebox. <laughs> <laughs> that could be argued a great description of a lot of Tarantino movies. <laughs> oh, cutting! <laughs> and Take I like that, Darren, you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, do you though, or do you like the people who work around Terrence? Oh, now we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, that, that they, the more you know about the process, the more it becomes complicated to be like, like, like yeah. I said in the review, I just say director because I only have so many column inches. <laughs> and I right. have to talk about a bunch of other things and if I keep stopping trying to figure out who is well, responsible for every goddamn thing I like in the movie. Well, also of, using like, the phrase column inches in a digital like website based world is deeply funny, but I'll talk <laughs> about now. Well sort of going back to something that Taylor said earlier about the uh, you know, the producer vision, I think it re- honestly depends on these days the company or the producer. Like mm. I would make the argument that Jason Blum is probably mm. the most involved producer in making a vision mm. of what he wants on a screen. Jason uh, Blum, who is a Blumhouse. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, and, and, and when he's not, I would say it's, you know, really the leap of faith. Cause I think uh, that was, wasn't he, was he get out? Yeah. Yeah. I believe yeah. so. So, I mean, if you really stop and think about it, Although I mean, Bl- like Blumhouse puts out so so many things. Well, and that's Blumhouse what's great, has, though. Blumhouse like if you th- if you don't out. know if you don't know who Jason Blum is, you yeah you do. You you just don't know that you do. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> right. I mean, in a lot of ways, they're sort of. I mean, I, I hate to give credit to this last name, but they're kind of. He's doing what the Weinstein's did in the eighties. Well, okay. Seventies, which is get off my. If you throw enough. <laughs> If you throw enough at the wall, something's going to stick. 
Right, right. Well, uh, the, the, not, not, I mean, uh, it, it's a little crass to say, like, quantity over quality, because there's a lot of quality there, but there is a lot of quantity, too. Well, <laughs> when the yeah, just because something... was at his prime, he was running people like Scorsese and Ron Howard through the machine, and they were... Jeremiah like... mentioned Corbin. Everybody take a drink. <laughs> <laughs> uh, lick me. Anyhow. <laughs> the fact that, like, you do it a low budget, and you show them that like every beat, every page you want to have a beat. You want to have a violence beat here. You want to have a beat with something crude or lewd happens here. Keep the audience attention, and it gets mm. done in under ninety minutes, and it costs you under two hundred thousand dollars. And you move on to the next movie. And if it flops, mm. that's fine. You don't have to shut down the entire wing of uh, a studio. <laughs> right, because it's you shepherded it. So even if it flops, it's it's not the worst thing that could happen. Because well, there's well, like, there's more stuff that, coming up. Give pipe. people like you're like here's your budget. Don't go over it. Mm. Uh, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I, honestly, I don't think it would be the worst idea in the world if uh, that model was employed more often. It, mm. it wouldn't. I mean, because like part of, part of the reason why the WB almost destroyed its independent wing was because of Batman v Superman. Oh, Sorry. Because <laughs> it still made money, but it did not make, because this is a weird term in Hollywood, enough money. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially since, like, budgets, as as we sort of receive them, usually don't count how much goes into, like, advertising and, like, product pushes and various other things that, that well, are not part of the movie's budget, but are still sort of counted in whether they're making money. Well, yeah, I've been told to you that like, you how, can like, what is uh, double budget? whatever budget you see, and that's how much they actually spent, which is actually crazy. If you go look at box offices, you're seeing only, you know, these only a few big blockbusters are actually making as much as we think they are. Because a lot of people spend, you know, $500 million on marketing, and that's, you know, mm. that's absurd. But you know, it's also necessary to kind of get the attention of people nowadays. Mm. Well, okay, here's my question. As a producer, like... How are you responsible for getting the funds, or do you just find people who are going to give the money, and then you just sort of funnel the money? Uh, producers usually find the funds, uh, at mm. least in my experience. Which so obviously you're a better producer if you've got access to more funds, um, and that just comes over time, really. Mm. So yeah, I mean, like you'll find there'll like be a, a lot of producing what? teams where that's one guy's function. Oh, okay. Because it takes a particular personality to ask for money. Right. I mean, I don't That's have true. it. I don't like to do that. You know, like a lot of people don't, like, I don't have it. I, you know, I'm more of a, you know, okay, I can do without kind of thing. But, you know, mm. there, I know some people, I'm related to one of them. No problem <laughs> asking for your last 20 bucks. <laughs> like, no problem with it. <laughs> um, and it, it, and it kind of takes that, that kind of personality. You know, one of my, um, one of the people I met throughout, he says he went to business school before he went into producing, consistently hits up all of his former classmates. And, hmm. you know, and he's like, I don't really start really feeling bad about it until the fourth or fifth time something I make doesn't really turn something over. Hmm. It's like, man. Well, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> if I was going to say, uh, sorry, okay. Jeremiah. No, go ahead, Taylor. What were you saying? Uh, I was just going to say that. Um, what was I going to say? <laughs> uh, I was just going to say that uh, you you do have to develop a knack for asking for money. It's, it's not a comfortable feeling, quite honestly. But de- someone's going to have to do it. You know, in all reality, it's got to come from somewhere. Uh, mm. It's a hard investment to sell a film in a way, and in another way, it's you know the most exciting product to sell. Uh, movies are so visual and so real to people, and you can if you want to get them involved before it's exciting for people who who don't really know what they're getting into. Um, <laughs> but and I'll actually make a very interesting point that they usually actually go over to the Saudis. A lot of Saudis make movies; they're invested in the movies because there's something appealing about getting into Hollywood and the shininess and the brightness and all that. And it, and you just get lots of investment over there because they want to be involved in some way. And it's those types it's like of people the, that uh, you know have an interest. Oh, and another place to go, believe it or not, is actually non-creative fields. Oh yes, non-creative okay. fields like a dentist or huh. uh, you know some like I said, very non-creative field. If they make a lot of money. Like my screenwriter teacher said, everybody wants to be in show business. I mean, yeah, that's, that's yeah, that that is the old trope. I, I can imagine, like in in some ways, 
just the, the that sort of specter, that cultural idea of Hollywood is a big part of just being able to sell that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I worked on an indie where they put, I think there was a certain threshold of money. Mm-hmm. And uh, these people, you know, would pop up on set and they would be the liquor store owner or the <laughs> cab driver <laughs> or, the, and you know. They would just pop, they'd show up for a day, and finally I was like, you know, wow, you went, who is that? And they, that's a weird choice for, oh, uh, you know, he's Dr. Blah, 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 and he <laughs> gave this, and that's his kid running around, and, you know what I mean? It's, oh, get out! You know what I mean? And it, it was just, and I, the producer and I of that, we became friends, and he actually hooked me up with a couple internships afterwards oh, nice. at various places around town. And yeah, he said that someone came to him and gave him that idea. So, like, it's just, it's a thing that is now sort of happening. Hmm. That, um, and, I, and I'm sure the, it sp- sparked the ideas. Things like, um, oh, I can't believe I'm forgetting. What's the, uh, Kickstarter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah crowdfunding, yeah. those sorts of things. Yeah, the crowdfunding, they have those thresholds where, you know, give a million dollars and you get this and that. Like, Oh, yeah, different, different sort of reward levels or backer levels or things like that. Yeah, so there's, Huh. Yeah, usually yeah. non-speaking. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I imagine that also creates a different kind of pressure because what happens if one of your financiers' bit parts ends up on the cutting room floor? Oh, that happens. That well, happens. I would imagine so, so because a lot yeah. of times you're oh, I, a movie I'm, I'm... and you see a name above the title. Perfect example: Crazy Rich Agents. Uh, there's an actor, Harry Shum Jr., mm. who was billed between Aquafina and the last two names, which are. Ken Jong and Michelle Yeoh. Mm-hmm. And he's in it for a half a second. He's the post-credit scene. <laughs> oh, man. And yet, it's one of the things where, like, clearly he had to have had a bigger role and he just got whittled down. Yeah. <laughs> Either that or his agent is amazing. No, and I feel for those actors, too, because you must expect them to be on set for however many days, making however many preparations, and then they all go see the screening. And they're like, what the hell is this? Where am I? <laughs> like, I mean, it must be, I don't know, the life of an actor. I don't envy it. <laughs> like, that sucks to be them, that's why I'm a I mean, that's, uh, that's the one through line of producing. Every set, I'm like, I don't want to be an actor. I know that. <laughs> I could not do that job. Yeah, but tough. Well, yeah, uh, no, that, something I don't think a lot of people really understand is the there's a psychological toll that takes its place while making a movie on each sort of level. Actors, and it sounds like producers as well, but in terms of creating the movie, there's a lot of stress emotionally and financially involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's very personal business, you know. Hmm. When you're a kid and you want to draw a picture, no one tells you, ah, no one's going to buy that picture, you know. Right. So when you're, an, when you're an adult and you do the same thing, oh, I want to make a movie this way, and you're here for the first time, someone goes, nah, it's crap. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the first time you hear it, it's hard. And hmm. uh, I, I would argue it gets harder every time. You just learn to hide your tears a little better. <laughs> uh, the, the thing is, you just have to be open to people, uh, you know, crapping on your stuff. Uh, and, you know, become open to it because they might actually have good ideas, which is a terribly hard thing to do because us yeah. and our narcissism would, uh, it's hard to get over ourselves, honestly, a lot of the times. Um, but once you get out of your own way, you can be surprised with what people bring to the table. Well, hmm. I, I think the kind of the perfect example is that is. Um, what happened to Zack Snyder and his destruction of oh, the DC movie universe. Oh yeah. <laughs> they, they can't run away from that guy fast enough. Hmm. And yet, I mean, I remember the day I read that he was signed, I was at my buddy's house and it popped up on my phone and I kind of like looked at him like, Oh no. <laughs> and you know, and, and this is, this is me. This is pre film school even, but even hmm. I was kind of like, I don't know if this is your guy for that character. Because he is going to cast a long shadow. And, I mean, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things because I love those characters. Oh, absolutely. Um, Superman is the, the greatest superhero of all time. Everyone fight me. You can't. Uh, I'm indestructible. Like I, I love those characters. More than that, though, is I love the fact that, for the most part, it's an American mythology. Yeah. It's the mythology of our country. And, like, this dude showed up and because he's good in a room and because he had box office numbers, but... No hmm. one stopped to like look at really almost the legacy of his work. The uh, there's there's the sort of no one was Jeff Goldblum and saying uh, may, <laughs> it, 
it's not a question of whether you can do it. It's whether you should. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's, you know, and, and unfortunately kind of like look at what it is, like look at what it became. Well, we got Wonder Woman out of it eventually. Yeah, but I don't, I mean, I think that had, Zack Snyder had as much to do with that as I did. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like that's, I feel like that's kind of the point. Um, but anyhow, so uh, so so it's getting back to like that. That's the kind of thing where a producer should have, at some point along the line, been able to know the IP well enough. Mm-hmm. IP is independent to look property. at the Close meetings. Sorry, <laughs> property. My bad. Uh, you know, to even at some point during pre-production, kind of go like, I don't know, man. You know what I mean? It mm-hmm. just it, at some and that and that's where. Like I said, a good producer can do that. Mm. And well, I think okay, in that so particular case, like that was like the really... two types of producers. The producers that are so they're kind of like the Marvel producer in terms of they understand the IP. And then what, what happened with the WP people, of the, they just wanted to make money. I feel like also, I mean, as we've talked about before, in terms of the, the battle of the superhero studio tentpoles, is a lot of it is it feels a lot more like the WB was, was chasing Marvel the whole time and not like taking the time to maybe put the kind of production questions up that needed to be asked and answered before they could do their own thing. Yeah. I agree. I think that they always, it was like kind of like the Olympics, someone like looking to America of how to win the Olympics. Like you're always going to be playing catch up. You're never going to overtake them. You might as well do your own thing and take a chance really. Hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's bothersome for me simply because, I mean, in the time, use BVS, I'm sorry, Batman vs. Superman as the example. Mm. I cannot believe the amount of YouTubers that I came across. <laughs> that, I mean, one night, you know, I grabbed a bottle of Jameson and I, you know, just started cruising YouTube. And I ran into 6 to 12 who had kind of solved a lot of these problems. That people got paid hundreds of thousands. Oh, you mean just through like, you, you mean just through like fan edits and stuff? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. One uh, there was this one guy. I, I judging by his accent, he's somewhere in England, mm. and he kind of had like a video essay, and he did. You know, he he sort of presented his thesis. I'm going to using the parameters of the film already, and what is it? So I'm not making anything new. Do what I think would have solved a lot of the, the problems with this film, and he did. Mm. <laughs> And then I was kind of sitting like, how did this dude drop 50 bucks on this video and some <laughs> idiot <laughs> got paid well, six figures to blow it? You know what I mean? Like, yep. it's, now, like, there's a sea of educated people out there <sighs> that these studios could call on and fly them out to L.A., you know, offer them a free trip to L.A. for, like, three days of their time, probably throw 10 grand at them. <laughs> Well, I've been yeah. arguing for quite a while that I think one of the biggest misconceptions are, and I'm not, the producers in Hollywood, the ones working at the major studios, do not know how to make a movie. Like they You're saying that's a misconception, a movie, or that that's true? <laughs> uh, the, they barely even know what a movie looks like, because otherwise you wouldn't give me Suicide Squad and everything like that. I don't know if it's the producers. I think the executives, because they're okay, the ones the that always okay or say no. And the problem mm-hmm. is, a lot of those executives aren't you know, on the battleground. They're not there on the day-to-day. They don't understand why decisions are made. They don't know why things are looking this way. And they don't... They're, they're largely the- chasing dividends and uh, trends. Yeah, or their own personal view. Like, mm. they'll, executives will get to mold the film as much as a director or producer would, which can be dangerous sometimes. And the successful mm. films, a lot of times, those guys will just stay hands away. Because when you when you change somebody else's vision, it's, it's very... You can tell. The audience can tell when two visions are coming, colliding, because it doesn't work. Hmm. Um, it, sometimes they don't work if they do, you know, successfully pull off the vision. So you got to clear out of people's way. And a lot of the studios are so nervous about what's going to sell and what will be too offensive or what they like, uh, hmm. that they'll intervene at the ninth, or, uh, you know, 10th, 12th hour and, uh, you know, pull something. And I think that also like a- happened to Batman versus Superman, because I believe, and I've been told by multiple people that the director's cut, uh, you know, solved a lot of the story issues, but you no. know, who's watching the director's cut yeah. really? No, I think not. it was three hours long. I watched oh. it. Yeah. yeah, it solved nothing. Yeah. I mean, it was more Amy Adams, so I was happy. Well, I mean, it's <laughs> it, it's not exactly that it solved anything. It's that it put more things in that, like, 
removed some of the questions about like where in the world the plot started, but the movie didn't, it didn't really solve anything. Sure, yeah, solved might have been a strong term. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could say made it maybe made it more cohesive. There we go. Yeah, it was a more cohesive mess than just being an incomprehensible yeah. mess. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, okay. But like so once I again, so. we, when I get back to like my point, like there was a guy on YouTube somewhere that strung the thing together and made his argument. And as I sat there listening to it, I was like, "Oh, I cannot believe this dude figured this thing out." And a team of people <laughs> trained in this didn't. Yeah, I mean, unless it comes down to, and, and what probably happens is when you have a guy like Zack Snyder. I imagine Zack Snyder is one of those dudes with the big smile and saying, yeah, 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 and just no, no, no. Well, I mean, I I also feel like, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but to be fair to Warner Brothers, vaguely, (laughs) is like once a movie is out there in the world, like, you, uh, congratulations on finding someone on YouTube who wasn't a raving loon. Uh, but also like the, the, that that like that good like idea or the those that that person that you found is one out of millions of other people who either think the released version is perfect, which those people exist, mm-hmm. uh, or like come up with their own like edits and things that don't really work. So I mean, there there is sort of just that like the benefit of crowdsourcing something is the size of the crowd. Oh sure, but at the but same uh, time... but also but still like yeah, those people like you're. The, the, the scale and the amount of the money that is paid to the people who made those decisions and failed is still staggering compared to the $50 guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, okay, and I mean, so I and if I'm one of those, the lesson I learned from this mistake is you pick up an intern, you have him scrounge YouTube, and you have him come up with a list of names. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm serious. I mean, if no, I, I, I. The thing is, though, that this now makes me paranoid because it's going to turn film production into Uber, and we don't <laughs> want that either. <laughs> How so? The, because the qualities of the film may go up, but like you're going to be paying people less and less and less to do better work to the point where like no one's going to be paid more than an intern at the level that's making the important decisions, and people up top will still be raking in all the profits. Like I, I have to to fly my like fear of that level of. Uh, oh well, now you're getting into contracts, <laughs> right? Right, like that. That's what I would become paranoid about. I don't think you're oh, wrong. Man. I just I see that idea as super rife for abuse. I think that's already happening, to be honest with you. Oh really? Oh yeah, I think the that the allure, like we were talking about earlier, with investors of coming into Hollywood, uh, a lot of filmmakers or producers or whoever is hiring use that to their advantage, and they'll find mm. people who just want to be in the industry and believe that they will do anything. You know, because you hear that a lot. Yeah. Uh, the problem is there's so many people willing to do anything that the established professionals who are charging fair rates and, you know, in their unions aren't picking up as much work because you can find 15, 20, 30 people who might actually have as much experience who are willing to take minimum payments. I think mm. uh, a film will never pay you more than, <laughs> than they can afford to. And yet right. executives and the higher ups and those at the top of the line people, they, they make quite a bit. Mm. So I would argue, yeah, it's already kind of happening that way. And it's been that way forever. Yeah, yeah. Once again, we get to like what my writing professor was saying. Like, no, and and to be honest, that was one of the aspects of producing I didn't like was having to find the lowest amount you could pay someone that could do a job. Yeah, that just crushed me as a person. Yeah. Instead of my instinct is to pay someone what they're worth, is you find out what someone will settle for. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. It's always a contract negotiation. There's no smiling and signing right away. Um, mm. <laughs> and it does suck because a lot of the times, and especially early on, your network's comprised of your friends and those that you went to school with. And then you have to come with to them with these subpar offers, like, I can't afford to give you anything. I hope you like pizza rolls and couches. <laughs> uh, I mean, know. I do. But. <laughs> but not exclusively and not as payment. And, you right. know, it is very difficult. It's very difficult to have to come to them with that because, uh, and mm-hmm. this kind of connects back with how personal your connections can be. It's your reputation. Like, you don't want to be the guy who gives out crap contracts all the time and has, you know, sets that you have to work super hard on. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just did a thing over the weekend for 75 bucks. I mean, like a thing on I, mean I, wish I, I do wish I had 75 bucks, so, you know. <laughs> I mean, and, and the thing was, I was happy to do it. Yeah. Depends how much clothes you had on, Mike. I'm not going to really question it. I, guess. I was a mailman. <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw that. 
But I mean, yeah, it was you know. But the thing is, I was happy to do because in that case, at some point, you know, it just it becomes a team mentality. You know, mm. this is my buddy, and this is his first time in the director's chair, and if I can help him, cool. Yeah, sort of yeah. like having to to balance and navigate like reputation and relationships, and also like material costs. I mean, the that thing point. is, it's all Vegas. Mm-hmm. All of all of filmmaking is Vegas. If it wasn't mm-hmm. fun to do it, nobody would do it. <laughs> right. It's, yeah. Vegas is fun, and sometimes you win, and most times you don't. But when you win, it's awesome, and that's the story you're going to tell. Mm. Right, and it's also like Vegas in that it is indeed gambling. I mean, as much as studios have been in this, you'll still see huge flops. They'll lose, you know, hundreds of millions, and you kind of have to wonder, like, kind of like what you're saying, Mike. Like, how is there a room full of people when a, a YouTuber can get it right and, and they don't know what's going on? And the fact is, we there is some mystery element that you just can't predict of whether people are going to like what they see. Uh, and you know, it's exciting for us as, as you know indie filmmakers. I'm sure it's terrifying for those executives who have put their <laughs> careers on the line and their names on the posters uh, right because you know if it flops reputation is certainly a thing mm. well so basically you've, you've got something that i think people really don't understand is it's more than just writing a good script if everyone knew how to make a hit we wouldn't be making flops yeah absolutely <laughs> there you wouldn't see a studio i mean studios should have all the advantages they've got guys who've been in it 50 60 years mm-hmm. and if you don't know by then you're never gonna know it's just some element of mm. you know i gotta put there there are just some things that cannot be systematized yeah, yeah. so i i heard um one of the funniest stories about what taylor's talking about peter goober told tells this story about when he was head of columbia mm. and sony was buying them out that the head of sony at the time came out to la and they went into the boardroom and sort of laid out to him what running a film studio would be. And the example Mm -hmm. they gave him was a slate of 15 pictures in a year. And Goober broke it down loosely like, well, you're going to have five that you make for this amount of money that are going to break even. You're going to have five that you make for this amount of money. This one will break even. These two will lose a little bit but keep you safe. There's going to be five that you make for a lot of money. These two will break even. This one will do well. This one will flop. And he lays it out out to him. And you're going to have one that you make for no money that makes way more money than you thought. So the head of Sony says... Does he have a hand on his crystal balls he's doing that? Yeah. So the head of Sony says, well, why don't you just make the movies that make money? (laughs) (laughs) and peter goober like kind of stopped and said if you can figure that out then you will have the best studio in town for all of time that's such that's such an amazing question like as though you're you're scheduling out oh no it's it's uh the time of year where we make the movie that doesn't make us any money Everybody get through this one. <laughs> but, but, but I, I mean, from a business point of view, I understand the logic of it. Yeah, it, it's there. There is a logic to it, but it's a very blunt logic. Well, it's and one it's, of the things. Where, like, know, as I mean, a reviewer, the number one thing I try to understand hmm. is I, I know for a fact, as much as I hate a movie I just saw, they didn't intend to make it suck. Right. right. <laughs> they're not. They're not doing it to troll you. Right, yeah. Right? Like, they exactly. No one's spending that much money. There's a lot, like we like said, at a one lot of time, everything aspects. you've ever seen, someone said this is going to be awesome. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm one delusional. Right. Like, there's a lot of time, money, and effort that goes into just a set alone, much less post and pre production. They don't go out mm-hmm. of the way to do this. It's not the producers. They don't want to lose money. They want this to be mm-hmm. a hit so they can at least get a good <laughs> night's sleep. Right. All right. So, that being said, we're out of time. I want to thank you guys for coming on. Of course. Yeah, thank you. It was so, a pleasure, man. Yeah, uh, I've learned I actually learned a couple of things. Yeah, I made myself sound smart, so. Congratulations. That's always good. sound smart. Always good. Yeah, the, <laughs> that, that is the goal is is to convince people that you know what you're talking about. That's our whole deal here. I yeah, that's what I know exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. Thank you guys for uh, tuning in. We're going to try to have some more interview episodes later uh, further on down the line. Yeah, do you guys have, have uh, like social media where people can find you or anything like that? I don't want anyone finding me. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> I'm good looking enough producer. to be found without having to give it up. <laughs> right. um, don't forget to check out the other podcasts on the site. The Phantom Minimalist, Unabashed Book Snobbery, Ladies First, 
of course, our own. You can find Thad somewhere out in the ether. He changes from time to time. You can find his <laughs> Jay Sherman Fiction on Twitter or uh, my Facebook, my actual name. Thank you guys yeah, for coming I, on again. Look, I'm, I'm on Twitter, at Thaddeus Strange. Find me. I'm there. <laughs> All right. Say goodbye, Thad. Farewell.